Welcome to the Wealth Guys Personal Finance Podcast, covering all the important wealth topics with the experts that matter. And now, here's your host, Joshua Steger. Welcome everyone to another financial podcast. Um, today I have the pleasure of hosting Simon Russell from Behavioural Finance Australia. Um, so basically, behavioural finance seeks to explain, you know, some of the hidden influences in, in why people make certain financial decisions. Um, another way of looking at it is, you know, our Stone Age minds really have difficulty in this relatively new concept of money, and that um, leads to some in, or many in unintended financial consequences. Um, so obviously, look, Simon's the expert. He's got a, a degree in psychology and also a master's in applied finance. So um, he's, he's obviously an expert that, that knows about this area and has a, he has a business, um, Behavioural Finance Australia, um, that, that works specifically in this area with investors and financial advisors. Um, so look, without further ado, I'll hand over to Simon and... and um, with the, uh, the first question, you know, what is behavioural finance and uh, why is it important? Fantastic question. And I think you've set it up well there. I mean, you've made some great points about the, uh, the brain and the unintended consequences. But to answer your question, I think that what behavioural finance is, is the combination of the psychology of how people think and behave, how they actually think and behave, and combining that with theories about finance and financial markets. So... How does it differ from traditional finance? Traditional finance tends to uh, assume, if you like, that we all act completely rationally. We make all these decisions that are completely in our best interest, well thought through, unbiased. Um, but what we know is that well, in many cases that's not the case. And it's not that we're acting randomly. There are actually a systematic ways that we're acting in perhaps biased ways. Um, so behavioural finance brings the research around how people actually are biasing decisions and then starts to apply it into financial decision making. So that's like, for example, like your subconscious, that's having an effect on why you make a certain decision on regarding, you know, a purchase decision or, or, or something like that when yeah. it comes to money? Yeah, I mean, the, the subconscious I, I find personally fascinating because there's, there's actually a lot of our brain that sits in the subconscious region where emotions happen and um, sort of other sort of fairly primitive aspects of our behaviour and we're just not aware of it. But what you can do is you can then track the outcomes of some of these sort of psychological biases and say, we can see it's in there, you're not aware of it, but when we track your behaviour, we can see how it's influencing you. So I think the, 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 the subconscious stuff you're talking about is fascinating, but it's, it's not all subconscious though. I mean, some of the stuff you're actually aware of, you're thinking through, you're analysing something, you think it's sort of perfectly unbiased and fully rational. But when you stand back and look at lots of people making the same decisions or lots of people making similar decisions, you go, well, actually, we can see it's not as rational or sort of unbiased as we might think. So I suppose a good example of that is, for example, the share market. And you can see that's a market of, of many, many people operating, you know, making buy and sell decisions. But at times, you know, you can have things like flash crashes or... Um, you know, mar market booms and busts. I mean, mm. is that is that an example of behavioural finance in action? Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, there's fantastic examples in there because there's definitely some aspects of rational, sort of analytical, sort of thinking, decision making going on in the market. I mean, it's not completely irrational. We can look at PE multiples, or we can look at sort of earning growth and and, and risk profiles and the like. I mean, it's there is a, a framework of rationality around it, 
but there also definitely are some irrational or unconscious biased emotional aspects that are also going to influence our decision making. Uh, the, the interesting thing about the market is that because it is hundreds or thousands or millions of people all participating together, sometimes you can actually see these things aggregated together. Um, and so that's that's actually one sort of fascinating stream of, of the um, sort of behavioural finance literature is how does it aggregate into a market? Absolutely. Okay, and, and then, I mean, in terms of actual numbers, you know, are, does, has anyone provided research as to how this could, could, you know, these decisions that you're making, you know, making mistakes with, um, mm. what, what kind of result that can have to your, for example, your wealth or... Yeah. Oh, look, there's, there's a, this magnificent studies around some of these things. Some of it's hard to track. Some of it you can actually go and have a look and, and identify patterns of behaviour. Um, one of the standout examples I, I like is uh, from the Taiwanese market. Uh, a few years back where because there's there's a wealth of information that comes out of that market and you can track sort of all the decisions that are being made and what the impacts are, what they did was look for some of the known biases that we have when we're making investment decisions. So there's patterns of when a stock goes up, well, we might more be more likely to sell it and when it goes down, we're more likely to hold it. So there's, there's reasons why that happens, which perhaps we can explore, but effectively because we're selling the one that went up and we're holding the one that went down. Well, actually what happens is we end up with a, a stock that we sold that really is going to continue to drift up and we've got one that we've held and actually that, that one continues to drift down. So you can track the difference between these two things and add up, well, how much would have happened if you hadn't been biased towards that decision? Uh, and that Taiwanese study, they, they added all these biases up and, and calculated 2.2%. 2.2% of GDP was the impact on investors of these decisions. Now, you put that in context in the Australian market, and this wasn't an Australian study, but 2.2% of GDP here is roughly the size of the utility sector. So you imagine all the gas and electricity providers out there, all the contribution to the GDP, all the people employed in that industry. If you wipe that out today, that's, that's roughly how much value that that particular Taiwanese study is showing. And it, and it really, it's not going to capture everything. It's probably actually understating some of these impacts. Absolutely. So that so that's a combination of everyone making on, on in their individual portfolios or, or investment decisions, making those mistakes, and then that just compounded. Yeah. I mean, but the funny thing is, I mean, some of these things do compound. So if everybody, like we just had the um, Medibank private uh, IPO the other day, Everybody there has got the same purchase price. Well, sorry, institution's a bit higher than retail, but sort of setting aside that. In that case, you might be able to say, look, everybody's going to systematically be biased one way or the other. So that's a good example where it might aggregate up and you can see an effect in the market. Whereas some other effects you might say, well, actually, look, if Joe Blow doesn't um, diversify their portfolio and Mary Smith doesn't diversify her portfolio... Well, Joe Blow and Mary Smith are taking unnecessary risks, but it doesn't aggregate up then to the market. It's th- these are things that are relevant at the individual investor level. Mm. So yeah, there's a bit of there's a bit of a mix in that. Okay, and then I mean, how long has behavioural finance been around? As I suppose, yeah, have, have people been aware of it or doing research on it and actually showing the the impacts of this on investing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because it's almost embarrassingly, I think, for the finance uh, sector. Embarrassingly, the psychology has been around. Some of the psychology has been around for a long time. 
So sort of mid-last century, um, certainly in the 70s and 80s, a lot of the, the major theories that underpin this area have been developed and have been obviously tested and refined since then. So you've got a fairly established, well-documented, well-researched psychology, so sort of beyond a reasonable sort of scope for, for, for undermining that with sort of the intellectual credibility of it. That's, that's well-established. But then how's it been applied in finance? I think it's, it's now coming to the fore and it's, it, it's taken some time for those insights to, to play out. And things like um, the GFC, uh, I think, have helped to sort of say, well, we had Greenspan, he got up in front of the, the US Congressional Committee or whatever it was, and they actually put him on the spot. And I, I didn't bring the quote with me today, but they put him on the spot and said, so were you right about this sort of fully rational model? And he had to admit, well, no, I wasn't. I, I've been surprised because I had what I thought was all this evidence that it was working, and here I stand for you, before you today going, well, actually, I was wrong. So moments like that when you had who was the god of effectively the rational model saying sort of mere culpa, sorry guys, I've got it wrong, I think that has helped sort of push the field into more into the fore and, and actually recognise that really the finance, sort of traditional financial rational model cannot explain, I mean certainly parts of it are still re relevant, but it cannot explain the sort of full suite of behaviours and biases and effects we see in the market. Yeah, so I think, I mean that's what I see with you know, in my dealings with clients and, and other people in the in the financial industry is that there's this, or we certainly read textbooks and there's this assumption that we are computers mm. and we make decisions. We're so rational. It's like, yeah, this is, you know, this is the outcome. One plus one is two. But mm. when it comes to, you know, you do, you delve a bit deeper, you find, geez, people are, we're, we're nowhere near computers and there's reasons for that as well. Mm. Um, that's, you know, protected us or through evolution to where we are now, and that, that mm. kind of goes back to that Stone Age mind um, yeah. quote at the start. So Yeah, and it's, I mean, the interesting thing about the mind is not only does it get biased, but actually there's reasons why we're sort of protecting ourselves as well, protecting ourselves from realising that we're as biased as we are. So part of it is because the biases emanate from, some of the biases emanate from subconscious parts of the brain. We, we're just actually not conscious that it's happening. So, and part of it, it actually it makes us feel bad, for example. We're less likely to recognise or bring on board insights about our own behaviour that make us feel, feel like we're a bit of a klutz. So it, 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 it's, it's very difficult, I think, is the answer to, to, um, to, to sort of actually trying to, to, to overcome some of this sort of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, I mean, in terms, I think I've read or you, you mentioned a, an example with World Cup soccer and yeah, yeah. As, an, as an example of behavioural finance in action. Yeah, well, we had the World Cup, I think, what, two or three months back now, and everyone was sort of sitting up late into the night watching the games. Um, and the interesting question there, I think, is, well, should the World Cup impact investments? Should it impact investment returns? And you might say, well, if I own shares in FIFA or whatever it is, some Brazilian merchandising, maybe it should. Mm. But really, that I mean, that's if anything, that's very, very small. I don't even know whether you can buy shares in FIFA. To be honest, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. But um, should that should those um, games impact markets and investments? I mean, I think everyone would say no, they shouldn't. Do they impact investments and markets? Well, the answer is yes, they do. Um, and so one of the studies was um, not just World Cup, but I'll just focus on the World Cup, where they looked at World Cup games and said, 
what is the impact of teams in particular losing, I think it's at the elimination stages of the World Cup. Uh, and the outcome was that, well, look, on average, what happens is if your country loses at the elimination stage, on average, that the day that that happens or the, the day following when the market opens, your market, your stock market is likely to fall by about 49 basis points, about half a percent. Um, and half a percent might not sound much, but half a percent on the Australian market is, what was it, 7 trillion or so? Uh, so 1.5 trillion. So half a percent might be about 5 billion. Mm. Uh, yes, just wanted to get my maths right. 7 billion. It's a big number. <laughs> it's a big number, that's right. And again, we were just talking about Medibank uh, private listing, which I think from memory was a bit shy of 7 billion market cap. So it's, again, we're talking about the soccer wiping off Medibank private from the, from the uh, ASX uh, if your team loses. Now, Australia, perhaps it's not quite so uh, impactful. Games of soccer, maybe not. we're not quite so... Well, we never make it to elimination stage anyway, do we? So maybe it doesn't matter, but maybe it's the World Cup one cricket. Day, one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. We can live in hope. Um, so, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a good, good um, lead into what are some of the common behavioural mistakes that people have identified in research and have proven... I mean, I don't know how, that, how they do experiments in, in behavioural finance, but, you know... What are some of those those mm. areas that people are making constant or regular mistakes in? Yeah, well, perhaps I'll give you an example of a, of a study so you get an idea of how some of this, this stuff comes out as well. So one study that I, I love, because um, it's another one of these sort of subconscious ones and brings out some of these issues, is where you have two groups of uh, investors going into a, like an investment game experiment um, one group of investors goes into a room and as they pass into the room, they go past a picture of a sort of happy, smiley face. Go past that, into the room, do their investment game. And you record all their investment decisions, you record the outcomes, what risks they took, what decisions they made. Out they come. Second group of people, same scenario. They walk in, this time not past the happy, smiley face, they walk past sort of an anxious-looking, sad face. Walk into the room, same investment game, same scenario, you have the same people, sorry, different set of people making the same sort of investment type decisions, trying to make as much money and, and develop portfolios and the like. So then you've got two now, two sets of groups of people who have done this experiment and you look at, is there a difference between these two groups? And you look at the people with the, who went past the happy face and those people have made more investments, they've taken more risk and they've made higher returns than the people who went past the anxious face. And you go, why is this? Well, everything was the same in these two scenarios, except for the picture. So then you ask the people, hey look, do you think that picture that you walked past on the way in, do you think that might have impacted your investment decisions? And, and what do you think? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I didn't notice it, even if I did, it wouldn't, I, I'm, I'm here to make the decisions that, yeah. to try and maximize my returns. So it's, it's only when you step back and look at the two groups you go, well, Everyone's denied it, but actually what we can see is that there is a significant, a statistically significant difference between these two groups. So that's an example, I guess, of how an, an experimental context can tell you as something as subtle as a picture that you know is, or you know rationally is irrelevant, that some people say they didn't even notice. If that can change your decisions, then think about all the stuff that's actually happening in the real world where, geez, if you got stuck in traffic on the way to work, is that going to impact your, your decision, for example? Uh, I mean, the, the emotional roller coaster that the market in itself, you'd think, gosh, hard to imagine that that's not going to impact your decisions. But all the subtle, I mean, I, I just think, gosh, if your teenage daughter screams at you on the way out, 
well, just before you're about to buy a share or sell a share, as this case may be, mm. God, you'd have, to, you'd have to think that, that that actual event of the emotional context of, of having a fight with your teenage daughter is probably going to impact your decision to buy or sell. Um, so I think that, that perhaps gives you a bit of an insight as to um, as sort of one of the biases. Um, there's a bunch of others. Do you want to go through a couple of others, or how would you like to? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think um, uh, there's. I think I read somewhere, and they, they said um, they asked people, "Do you think you're an above-average mm. driver?" For example, and, and you know what was it, it was something like eighty percent of people said, "Yeah, I'm 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 above average." But you know, yeah. based on the numbers, not everyone can be above average. Yeah. So that, that's another example. Well, I can tell you where I live. I'm definitely above average. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of bad drivers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, but that I mean that that's a, sorry, that being flippant, but that's a, a great example because clearly when you step back at it, you go, well, now fifty percent are, are going to be above, fifty percent are going to be below. Mm. We are. This is demonstrating overconfidence, and overconfidence, you're right, is one of the big biases uh, about how people actually manage their financial affairs. Mm. So. Technically, and I don't know, we don't want to avoid sort of the technicalities, but it's good to just put a definition on the table. Um, overconfidence in, in the way behavioural finance views uh, investment decisions is saying the, the range of uncertainty, that how, what possible range of things could happen. Um, we, we just think it's narrower than it is. We underestimate how wide the possibilities are. We underestimate the low probability events taking place. So if you go into an investment thinking there's actually a narrow range of possible outcomes, well, you're more likely to take risks there, aren't you? You'd have, oh, I'll have some more of that, I might borrow to, to invest, or, or why bother diversifying because, look, the risk is so low. Um, whereas if we actually took a, a true view of the, the risk of this and saw the broader sort of range of uncertainty, if you like, then, well, actually, there are risks that you might want to think about diversifying or perhaps not taking quite so much risk or, or whatever the other mitigants might be in that particular person's mm. sort of context. Um, the other aspect, if you'll if you like me to keep going that, that train, yeah, yeah. We, we, I mean, overconfidence is really just understating how wide the range of expectations or how wide the possibility is, but it actually gets paired up with sort of like the evil twin sister, um, which is uh, optimism. Optimism sounds fantastic. You want to work with people who are optimistic and they're great managers and they're great leaders and they do well and everyone likes them. Awesome. But it's not great necessarily from an investor's perspective because if you're underestimating the range of uncertainty, you're underestimating the things that could happen and you're actually optimistic, so you're more likely to be thinking sort of at the top end, what this means is you're going to get surprised more often than you should and those surprises are going to be negative more often than they should. So those two things in combination are really dangerous uh, and lead people to sort of you know, some of the blow-ups that you see in, in all sorts of walks of life. Absolutely. Yeah, look, I think that's a really good point. Um, I mean, a lot of the investors that I follow or that I've you know, read books about and, and studied the way they invest, um, they all focus on managing the downside risk and letting the upside work for itself. Whereas I find the typical investor or the typical advisor or stockbroker out there is always just looking for outperformance or how do we do better than the market or how do we do better when you really just have to avoid or, or certainly the best people avoid the downside so that goes to that that point of um, that you made earlier was you know losses why do we hold stocks and, and ride them all down but then sell our, mm. our winners too mm. quickly and not not get the full profit out of it yeah and, and actually that's thanks for bringing it back because I think that's that that may be the the single biggest individual bias 
is the one that we call loss aversion, which is that we effectively have twice the psychological impact, twice the, the feeling associated with, say, a $100 loss, as we have for a $100 gain. So, and this biases our decisions in a number of ways, and it's a bit more complicated than what I've just described, but effectively that two to one ratio means that you, you've bought a stock, it's gone up, well, you might be sitting there thinking, well, really, it's the benefit of me getting a bigger gain, well, that's not nearly as powerful as what the other thing that's lurking in the back of my mind, was, which is, if I don't sell this thing now, it might, make a, it might go down and make a loss. I'll give up this gain I've got, I'll make a loss, that's got a big powerful impact. So you're looking at a, a future potential bigger gain, low impact, with a, the alternative being a reducing the gain I've got and making a loss, big psychological impact. Well, what I'm more likely to do in that scenario is actually to sell that stock. I lock it in, I feel good. Mm. The problem is that stock that you've just sold is the one that's more likely to keep going higher. There's a momentum effect that sort of, I guess, tends to mean that that's the wrong sort of ultimate decision for um, if you're trying to maximise your wealth. And the opposite happens with the stock that goes down. You look at it, it's gone down. It'll Bugger. come back. We'll, that's we'll right. That, from it. Well, that's, yeah. that's the conscious bit. Yeah. So that's the conscious bit that sort of sits over the top. So the unconscious bit, which is probably the real reason, is you go, gosh, I've made a loss. If I lock it in now, I mean, it's always going to be a loss. feel bad. Yeah. That's right. You look forward and go, well, if it makes a bigger loss, I'm not, it's not as, I mean, it's, it's still worse, of course, but it's not a bigger much bigger sort of psychological impact. Your, your bigger losses are not sort of twice as bad as smaller losses from a psychological impact perspective. But geez, if I could get rid of my loss, if it does come back and I go back to break even or perhaps even make a gain, gosh, that's going to have a huge psychological impact. So all this is happening in the subconscious and that bubbles up into your conscious awareness. Effectively, the decision already bubbles up saying you should, you should hold on to this thing. And then in your conscious awareness overcomes the layer of sort of rational thought. I've effectively made a decision to, 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 to hold on to this sort of stock. Oh, well, it's going to come back up. It was unlucky or revert. So I'll just hold on. I'm a long-term investor. You know, all these sort of, these sort of, um, sort of rationalizations that happen. It really probably is a decision that's happened already in our subconscious. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, one of the um, investors, Bill, Bill O'Neill, which is a, who's a really successful investor out there, out of the US and he's written a book um, how to make money in stocks um, and that's a big thing he says he says put a stop loss in as soon as it hits you know if you buy something and it's down seven and a half percent just get out because yeah you, you bought it or you, you subconscious or sorry the behavioral aspects of your of your mind will just take over mm. and as you said write, write it down mm. and hope it'll come back but you know that's so damaging to your wealth mm. Well, of course, there's also the alternative, how to make money in stocks, is to write a book about how to make money in stocks. Yeah, it's also pretty successful. But, uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about shares. What about property? I mean, does this apply to making, you know, to this mm. investment decisions or even buying the, the house you live in? Like, what kind of behavioural aspects would be involved there? Yeah, a good question. I, I mean, some of the same underpinnings apply, whether you're talking about investments or property or, or frankly, a range of decisions that a consumer might make day to day. So I think overall there's large consistency, but obviously there's differences between property and the, the, com, compared with sort of share investing. Um, I mean, there's obviously an emotional connection that you have, and the sort of the, some of the emotional aspects are more salient, to use the, the um, sort of the literature word, sort of more vivid and, and um, sort of tangible for someone buying property. But but also you've got I mean, things like there's a familiarity effect. 
So in the world of stocks, you're, sorry, just take a step back. So familiarity means you're more likely to feel good about something that's familiar to you. You're more likely to trust it, to feel it's right, and to feel it's true. And what it means in the world of stocks is you're going to have a, a bias, you may have a bias towards domestic stocks because you're familiar with, in our case, Australian shares. Yeah. We're 2% of the market, and yet they make up 80% of people's portfolios. Yeah. You go to Finland, where it's, I don't know, 0.1% of the market, and yet Finnish investors all invest in Finnish yeah. stocks, for example. So that's how it works in the stock market. Now, come back to property, and the same thing is going to apply, I guess, that you're going to buy, more likely to buy a property that you're familiar with. You're more likely to buy property at all if you're familiar with property investing. Yeah. Same thing happens for shares. But the interesting thing, one interesting thing about property is the way it aggregates up into a market. Because in the marketplace, you can go, well, if investors are being quote, irrational or there's biased in some way, someone should be able to step in and trade against them. Every time you're buying, someone's selling. So there should be some sort of counterbalance in there. And some, some things work, some things don't. But overall, sophisticated investors should be able to come in and, and actually make a difference. But if you look at residential property, well, sophisticated investors just can't come in. And there isn't a major institution that can come in and go and buy or short sell a big swathe of the northern beaches or wherever it is they think they might be overpriced at that stage. So I guess without that sort of dampener effect, you're more likely to see sort of some of the swings happening in property, or there's, there's perhaps less control over it happening in property than there is in shares. Mm. There's, I mean, there's, there's a few things that change as well, but that's, that's one of the interesting things about property is I guess the implications at an aggregate level. So, I mean, in terms of, if, you know, if I live in Bondi, I'd prefer to buy a, an investment property in Bondi as opposed to, to buying one in Brisbane, even if the, the, the actual investment numbers stacked up to be better to, to buy in Brisbane. Is that that's yeah. an example? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you look at two properties in Bondi and you go, well, how have you diversified your risk? A big wave come, I don't know, I don't know Bondi, <laughs> I don't know if the, the wave can get in that far <laughs> or whatever it is, but you haven't diversified, have you? Mm. I and mean, A, a property investment by itself is less diversified, but geez, if you've got two in the same location, then all those risks, I guess, are multiplied. So you'd think the rational decision would, well, unless you know something about Bondi's property Mm. market that I don't, which is quite possible, but you'd think the rational decision would be to diversify, to find opportunities elsewhere. What's the chance that Bondi is the only property investment opportunity in the whole country? Uh, I'd I'd guess there's other opportunities somewhere else as well that perhaps would be worth considering. But interestingly, what you see is not only with property, but when you go and study share purchase decisions in the US, for example, you can plot the distance between where someone lives and the company that they've bought. And what you find is that, well, people who live in the south tend to buy companies in the south. People who live in the north tend to buy um, stocks in the north. And you can actually end up with disparities because if there's a lot of investors and not a lot of companies or vice versa, well, do you end up sort of end up buying a lot of companies and pushing their prices up? And I think the same thing probably applies uh, into property to some extent as well. So you mentioned it's it's more difficult to, uh, I suppose, play the other side of that, um, the the mistakes people are making in property. But I mean, there are examples of successful investors or investment strategies that um, that play on those those themes in the market. I mean, what what are some of those? Yeah, a good question. I mean, some people take the, the view that they're going to trade specifically against what they see as the biases in the marketplace. So you see contrarian investors who 
who see, I guess, that there are sort of the, some stocks out there that everyone's going to tend to, they have likeable characteristics, if you like. So a likeable stock might have a higher growth profile, everyone likes that, revenues are going up. It might be in an interesting new innovative industry, it could be a biotech or a technology or whatever, some examples like that. Uh, it could have a new well-known management team or, I mean, there's, there's things that make stocks likeable. Now, those likeable stocks, if people are going to, sure, those things are great. They lead to value creation, no, no doubt. But it doesn't help if you're the investor who's bought those things at way too high a price because everybody else likes that stock as well. So certainly there are contrarian investors who deliberately look for stocks that have unlikable characteristics. Unlikable characteristics probably means they've been sold down too far. Yes, they're not as good as a high growth sort of high return, well, high growth sort of company. But given the price they're at, they're actually probably going to return a higher return to the shareholder when you factor in dividends and sort of capital returns. So I think that's one, one solution, trade against these effects. Um, the other thing that uh, I think when you were touching on the sort of setting the stop loss idea is, is the idea of taking out the decision away from the person, taking the decision away from the moment when you're most likely to be affected by the, the, the emotions. So if you put a stop loss in as an example, I'm not necessarily suggesting that's the, the right way to go, but if you take that as an example, you'd say you're actually making a decision at, in the quiet of a sort of an, an unemotional context when you haven't experienced the gain or the loss or the emotional roller coaster coaster of the volatility of the market or whatever it is. You're now making a decision without all that context about what's going to happen in the future. You're effectively taking yourself out of the decision-making situation when you're most likely to make something a wrong decision. So that's that's a good strategy, and it's, it's really it's part of systematizing a process. Is taking the human aspect out of decision making, quanti- make, making it based on quantifiable rules based decision making. Um, so I think that's that's a strategy. And the other couple of things I'd mention are when you look at the aggregate, or perhaps one other one other aspect. When you look at the aggregate sort of market anomalies that come out. So that, that effect we talked about before where you have a stock that goes up and you're going to um, sell that one and the one that goes down. Well, if people are systematically doing that, what you're going to see is some momentum effects. You're going to see stocks that go up and actually then continue to drift higher and the ones that go down continue to drift down. So is this a trading strategy that you can use by just going back? And some people definitely do this. Go back and say, I'm just going to find the stocks that have started to go up and put my money in those. And some will go down, sure, but on average, that portfolio, and this is a momentum trading strategy, is just those ones are going to continue to go up, mm. um, so you should outperform. So that's that's the, I mean, there's a perception it's buy low, sell high, but that's that's an example of buy high, sell higher. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and, uh, and, and quite a successful one at that as well for, for many investors out there. Well, certainly, that, and that, that's one that's, that really has quite a bit of support. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different stories in the marketplace about what works and what doesn't. But if you go and look at the literature and say, what does the literature actually show us? It actually shows out that these things are long-term effects that have been rigorously tested and identified in the marketplace. So momentum is one. The PE effect of trying to find stocks that are lower value, the unloved, sort of like the contrarian strategy, the low PE stocks or the smaller stocks. So there's uh, long-term studies that show that these things tend to outperform. So if you're going to bias your portfolio in a way, biasing them towards those momentum strategies, the low PE, unloved stocks, some of the smaller stuff, 
think that's where the literature actually would support those strategies might then add some more value. Yeah, great. And then, I mean, so we've had, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the research and how it actually works, but what does that mean for the, for the average investor out there? What should they do? Like, obviously, this is happening. We can't avoid it. Um, yeah, what, where should they go from here? Yeah, well, it's interesting you say we can't avoid it. Cause, I mean, I've come to a similar conclusion that perhaps not that we can't, but it's very, very difficult to do so in a lot of ways. So, I mean, I think part of it is just becoming aware of how this stuff is likely to affect you. So at least you're arming yourself with the knowledge uh, and it's, I mean, it, I find it a fascinating field to get to get um, involved in. It tells you not just about your investments, but all the other decisions you're making in life. So I think definitely self-awareness is a good stepping stone. But what the evidence also shows is that it's very hard to overcome this stuff yourself. It's hard to see the biases in your own decisions. It's much easier to see the biases in someone else's decisions. So in that context, sort of being able to, I guess, find someone to bounce ideas off as a sounding board, to someone you trust who can say, well, actually, Steve, did you realise that what you're doing now is consistent with this biased effect, over here, this disposition effect or this overconfidence effect or whatever it is? I mean, even the terminology, actually, the terminology, I think, is useful in itself because you can actually identify a type of behaviour or a type of biased thinking and say, yep, there's a label for that. This is what it is. This might be applying to you right now. But very hard to do that yourself and look at your own behaviour, particularly when you're in the midst of what might be a stressful situation, it might be a complex situation. And um, So that's, I think it's difficult, but I don't want to make people think it's impossible because certainly there are things you can do to, to improve some of this sort of thing. Do you think, uh, I mean, are many invest, investors already aware of behavioural finance or, or even advisors like is it that well known in, in the marketplace yeah that's a good question and you look at someone like Warren Buffett so everybody knows Warren Buffett now what does Warren Buffett say he says try to be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy mm. um, and if you look at his quote he says try to be but that's not actually what's often quoted often it says be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy So I think people know the catchphrase. It is, hey, play against the market. It is buy things when they're cheap. It is look for sort of covered opportunities and that sort of stuff. But she's actually doing it. I mean, even Warren Buffett says try. I mean, he's recognising that it's easier said than done. And and really that effect that we looked at um, uh, earlier where you're going to sell the stock that's gone up and hold the one that's going down. I mean, the old trader's adage, uh, which is what... um, Cut your losers and let your runners, winners run, yeah, or words yeah, to that effect. Yeah. I mean, people have heard these catchphrases, but what they actually do is the opposite. So, yeah, I think there's some awareness, but you're getting to the bottom of actually, well, why are we acting in some of these ways and what can we do about it? And then, really, if it's very hard to overcome, who can help me or how can I control it through putting a, a, a process or a set and forget strategy or, geez, even simple things like checking my stocks every day. I'm going to see lots of losses, I'm going to be affected by that. Check them every month, less so. Check them every year, less so again. I mean, there's simple things like that will mean, geez, if I only check my stocks every year, I'm probably only going to see a loss one in three years or depending on what the profile of the portfolio is. If I checked it every one in 10 years, again, not suggesting necessarily you do that, and you might want to rebalance or God knows what, but if you checked it every 10 years, you'd almost never see a loss, you hope. <laughs> every, now, every now and then you might, but... Um, but if you say losses is one of the effects, yeah. you can actually just stop yourself from experiencing them. 
So these are the sorts of tricks, if you like. I mean, no one's trying to trick anybody here, but to, you're almost trying to, your brain is tricking you anyway. So it's almost trying to trick your brain back into doing the right thing. And so there are some strategies that people can employ. So I know, I mean, there's a lot of successful investors and they have a, a, a series of rules that they use mm. before they make an investment decision. So it might be something like, yeah, well, we're going to have, you know, stop loss of 7.5%. We're going to only buy things that are going up. We're going to, mm. um, you know, it needs to have these certain characteristics. Um, and I think that's a, a thing a lot of people or individual investors don't have and that's why yeah they just go and make an investment decision and then just get caught up in the I suppose the the, the washing machine of, of behavioral mm. finance um, yeah issues that come up in, mm. internally in their minds yeah and even having the rule though sometimes isn't enough I remember a, a investment company I was working at and we bought a company at IPO and the strategy was effectively a short term when we thought it was going to be undervalued and uh, so we bought it so the strategy worked, we bought it, it went up. Um, so at that point you think, well, the strategy's complete, we've done, let's get out of it. That, that's what we went into the investment with, effectively a, a rule that that's what we do. But of course, when it's, when it's happened, well, we reconsidered it and we think, oh, actually, no, but the market's changed. And so it, it, it's hard to control yourself. To in, the, that. in the heat of the moment. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So you sort of, I mean, some people, as an, at an extreme case, there's examples out of the US where to avoid that happening at all, the, the portfolio manager sets the rules and then does not even know what the stocks are that the rules have then picked in their, in their, for their portfolio. So completely unaware, there's no way I can be effective because I don't even know what I'm holding. And that particular example, I, I forget who it is, but that, I mean, they've done very well through this strategy because it's, again, they've just taken any semblance of the, the bias of their decisions sort of out of the context and, and just applied the decisions to the rules and then... Um, so effectively um, sort of playing into some of these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, yeah, Warren Buffett, um, and it's a surprise for many, he doesn't actually have a computer. Does he? I think I he just sent <laughs> maybe one email in his life and <laughs> maybe did a tweet once. And, uh, yeah, that he just – and also he lives in, in Omaha as well, so far away from all the, mm. the financial noise and, you mm. know, the Wall Streets. And, and no wonder he avoided the tech wreck then. Yeah, yeah. So he just, <laughs> didn't know that. didn't get caught. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but I mean, there are some good books out there as well that, that probably people should should look mm. at, which are actually pretty engaging. I mean, they're not just about you know numbers and, and research. There's actually some some good um, case studies. Oh uh, yeah, I completely agree that there are so many examples of getting people into different situations and seeing how they behave. Mm. I, I, personally, I find it fascinating reflecting on my own behaviour when I see these these sorts of studies. And I mean, we've been talking about behavioral finance, but the broader behavioral economics about how all this sort of stuff applies generally to all the decisions that you make, a fascinating field, I think. But in particular, Thinking Fast and Slow is the book that I recommend. Um, and if, if people are willing to invest a bit of time in understanding this sort of stuff, it's not a finance book, it's a psychology book. But bear in mind, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote this book, won a Nobel Prize for economics. So he's a psychologist and he won the Nobel Prize for economics. So that, it's a big statement for, for economists for a, start, for a start. But anyway, the, the, the psychological implications or the economic implications, I should say, of the psychology of that book are really substantial. And the financial implications for anyone making investment decisions, I would think everyone should read that book, frankly. As soon as my kids are old enough, I'm definitely putting it on their reading list. So, yeah, I mean, it should almost be a, a requirement before you set up a self-managed super fund or, or do something 
you know, with your retirement savings, for example, that you kind of, yeah, you read this book or you know what's going on with, with these, these aspects because you, you might just make a, a huge financial mistake in a time when you can't afford to do so, you know, right mm. before retirement or something like that. And, and mm. certainly we saw that happen in the, in the GFC. You know, people, people got caught up in it, you know, prior to, mm. to the collapse. So Yeah, and, and some, of, some of what you read in that book and, and uh, see elsewhere is actually counterintuitive. So y- you can be blindsided by this sort of stuff. So really being aware of it, at least identifying how I might be going down the path of a biased decision, it might have a significant implication. I mean, a self-managed super fund's a great example. You're dealing here now with your retirement savings. So it's not like you're going to the shop and perhaps I'm biased by the 50% money back that a guarantee or whatever. Maybe I am, and what if my dishwasher doesn't work? Well, it might have cost me 500 bucks. Not with your self-managed super fund, though. It's these are The financial consequences are so large that you really need to be careful about these sort of things. And another one, you know, in insurance, for example, in Australia, like pe- people will, without a doubt, will go and insure their car, insure their house. Mm. When it comes to their most important asset, you know, their ability to earn an income or their life, mm. You're like, oh no, I don't need insurance for for that. Like, yeah, why, why would I need that? Yeah, no, that, that's a fascinating one. So I, I completely agree with what you said. In fact, I, I reflect on my life, and I've avoided any insurance on anything I can possibly find. I try not to. I've only got third party on my car. I don't have any contents in my house. Uh, take every. I reckon I can self-insure that. But I tell you what, on my life and TPD, I've gone to the hilt because it's the biggest individual risk. But you're completely right because the, the, the biases show that, well, things that aren't salient, th- things that aren't vivid or imaginable or might be in the future and all, all these things about, well, I might become a quadriplegic or all these things, they're not pleasant to think about. They're, they're small probabilities, but, geez, they're large impacts if they happen. So we are, we're biased to underplay those things and not think about them and not react to them or, or mitigate those risks. So, yeah, huge implications, I agree, for insurance. Yeah, because I think, I mean, the stats are it's something like 95% of um, families are underinsured in Australia mm. for, you know, life insurance, which is, you know, obviously things like income protection. Mm. You would think, I want to protect my income if, if something happens, but, yeah, mm. people just don't, don't have the cover at all. Yeah, which and, is, and, and sometimes it's, I mean, you look at why we're doing it, because we under, underplay some of these things if it's not salient and we can't. Mm. But the solution there is make it salient have a case study of someone who this has happened to if this if the person knows a friend or a family member or or it's in the news or whatever it is you say well those are the strategies that make that person more aware and actually you can go the other way you can overplay i mean it's probably a good idea to overplay some of this stuff because it was so underinsured as it is mm. but to give people that if i can think of a, a story and it's vivid and it's it's tangible and real for me well that's that's really going to help someone make that that decision um, in their best interest. Um, so if you are an investor and you've got a, who knows, you've got a financial advisor or a stockbroker out there or, I mean, how could you work together with them or, um, yeah, in terms of being able to manage these behavioural finance aspects? Mm. I mean, are advisors aware that these are happening? Um, I mean, what's your experience? Yeah, I mean, I've worked with quite a number of advisors and I'd say almost everyone's got some level of awareness of this sort of stuff. Um, I guess in dealing with clients, they see a lot of decisions, uh, some good, some bad. So I'd say from their experience and their their sort of reading in the industry and their knowledge, I'd say everyone's got some level of knowledge, um, but certainly the level of knowledge can vary. So 
if you're dealing with an advisor, I guess try and find one if you can who has a higher level of knowledge, particularly if what we're talking about is you, the client, making a lot of your own decisions. If it's a relationship where you've effectively delegated decision-making to the advisor, hey, I'm not feeling confident about my financial affairs, can you please help me with investment or a strategy or whatever it is? If that's the relationship, perhaps it doesn't matter so much because the advisor is making the decision. Bearing in mind, the advisor might be biased, so you keep that in mind. But if the relationship is a bit different, if it's a relationship where the advisor is a sounding board or you're talking about strategies, but the client is then making, you the client are, are making the, the ultimate decisions and it's if, if that's more of the, the, the dynamic or if it's a stockbroker where actually you might be making a lot of your own decisions and the stockbroker might just be feeding you some recommendations. If that's more of the relationship, then it's obviously the onus is much more on the client and the, the advisor or the broker to work together to help, in this case, the investor client to overcome some of this stuff more directly. I think that's probably the connection, the sort of validator, if you like, client. The client who wants to make decisions but have them validated or bounce ideas or test them with the advisor, that's probably where I think the, the biggest opportunity for benefit might be. And uh, there's another important factor there as well, like in terms of the alignment of interests with an advisor and the different advisors, for example, you know, a stockbroker or a real estate agent will get paid on commission, so they just just want you to do a make a transaction. Um, whereas, you know, there's other ways to to get advice, whether you just pay a, a flat fee or percentage of assets and things like that. So it tends to because that that has a big impact on you know what what kind of advice that that advisors giving to you essentially and the outcomes in that way yeah it does and there was a fantastic paper from ASIC um, only a month or so back that looked at insurance commission advice and yeah big upfront insurance commissions was tended to be associated with poorer insurance advice not to say every person who received a commission every advisor gave poor advice of course but certainly there was there was an impact And, and that's supported by research in the field that yeah incentives do matter they're not everything but if someone's got the wrong incentive, it's likely to lead to a little bit of a, a, a higher chance of that person having a sort of a bit of a self-rationalisation, a, a slight tilt towards whatever might be in their best interest, the advisor's best interest rather than the client's best interest. Obviously, it's not going to affect everyone equally, so don't want to tarnish everyone with the same brush. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I mean, our six report probably says, um, says it for itself, I guess, that yeah, there's certainly an issue amongst some advisors and some commission structures. Um, I mean, what? Uh, how do you know if, if your advisor is accredited or, or has some knowledge of behavioural finance? Because I don't, I don't think it's something that... Do they teach it in, in university courses? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. If you Google behavioural finance, you do find a few um, uh, university courses on it. I'm not sure how long they've been there, though, because when mm. I went through finance at uni, uh, at least for my undergraduate degree, there wasn't a behavioural finance component to it. Uh, yeah, I certainly didn't. didn't. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of finance study and never actually did a topic on it. It's, yeah. it's only been in books that I've read. and yeah. So, yeah, I still feel it's, it's relatively new. Is, I mean, is that that's certainly yeah. the case? Or? Well, I, I went back and did... Um, I did my master's a few years ago, but I went back to uh, to uni and took an extra topic. And there was a, an interesting a, a subsection in that about some of these biases, but look, particularly looking at institutional investment decisions. But the interesting thing was that the presenter at the time sort of disowned it, sort of in the sense that, hey, I'm not a psychologist, I can't speak for this, it looks important, you should read it and understand it. That was sort of the message. And that's where I thought, well, actually, I've got a background in psychology, really, I can 
perhaps bring some of the psychology aspects to play for finance. And, and maybe that's a limitation at this point, is that people who've got a finance background and people who've got a psychology background often are two quite different people, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I know being at uni when I went to the psychology lecture and then went off to the maths lecture, yeah. it were two pretty different groups of people in those two lectures, so maybe not so much overlap. But certainly um, uh, what, what I'm doing is, is helping advisors to, to understand some of these things through uh, workshop training, through articles, that sort of thing. So um, we're accrediting people and saying, look, these advisors have been through the course, they've completed a test, they understand these effects. Uh, and then trying to work with advisors and clients to try and say what what tools and processes and support can we uh, can we give. So I guess you can look out for a Behavioural Finance Australia bit um, of accreditation. Uh, we're a small organisation, but happy to take over the world if you can. <laughs> no, look, it makes makes a lot of sense because yeah. it is, as I said, you know, going back to that those early examples, like how much of an impact these. Um, you know, making these mm. mistakes can be on, on your wealth. Therefore, mm. it makes sense if you've got an advisor, you want them to be aware mm. of, of how this could all play out for you. Yeah. I mean, an advisor who's not aware of this stuff, I think, is really missing a lot of opportunity to help their clients. As we, we've talked about investments today. We've touched on insurance, but there's a range of other areas as well about mm. how you protect yourself from the risk of running out of money in retirement and a, and a whole raft of different things. So... Uh, yes, certainly I think very fertile ground for an advisor to add value to a client and this sort of stuff if they understand the field. Yeah, great. So, I mean, we'll, I mean it feels like we could talk about this all day. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly find it fascinating and, and I think we've only only very briefly scratched the surface, if, if that at all, and in terms of, you know, this, this topic. Um, so certainly if, if people listening to this want some more information, go to your website, which is behavioralfinanceaustralia.com.au and I think yeah if you just type in behavioral finance Australia and Google I mean I think you're the, the first result yeah so. try, try and click on the free link rather than the paid link yeah. <laughs> true true um, but yeah no, look I really appreciate your time Simon and um, yeah hopefully some stage in the future we can get you back and, and maybe delve a bit deeper on, on some certain topics but I, look I think you know what we've covered today has is, is been mm. absolutely fascinating and uh yeah, I think yeah, certainly an expert in your field, and and we we look um, we'll watch with with great interest to see where where behavioural finance Australia um, goes in the future, and 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 certainly look yeah, as I said yeah, anyone listening out there um, get to the website and and uh, and follow Simon. You know, he has a, a lot of good points there today, and and a, a lot of things that can certainly add a lot of a lot of value to your wealth. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, pleased to come back at any time. So yeah, I look forward to it. Okay. Thanks, Simon. Great. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Guys Personal Finance Podcast. To find out more, go to www.joshuastiga.com.